Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the bi-weekly show from London's home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christodoulou. Werner Herzog is one of the greatest film directors of all time, and he's just published a memoir with the incredible title, Man Against Man and God Against All. Last week, we brought him together with legendary critic Mark Commode. Enjoy. I want to start with this. Chapter 12 ends with this magnificent phrase, As far as I'm concerned, the 20th century in its entirety is a mistake. The 20th century is also the century that gave us cinema, Werner. So what do you mean when you say the 20th century in its entirety is a mistake? Uh, Well, it sounds a little bit provocative (laughs) and it should be like that. But uh, there's a serious background to it. Uh, If we look at the 20th century, we had uh, the demise of the great social utopias. It brought catastrophes on humankind communism, paradise on earth. Uh, If you did not understand that this was paradise, you should be locked away in a lunatic asylum. And of course, fascism and the Nazis and all the barbarism that came along with it. So, and and the Holocaust. Uh, So that's catastrophic enough, but many other things, the most, in my opinion, the the real, real, catastrophic thing that went almost unnoticed during the 20th century, the increase of the population on our planet. I think we were one and a half billion or two billion inhabitants on this planet. At the end of the century, uh, it was almost eight billion, and that's too much. And that brings all the ecological catastrophes. We are consuming too much. The attitude of consumerism also, uh, the atomic bomb, uh, you you just name it, so many catastrophic things uh, that occurred. And um, so in its entirety, we have to look with great, great caution at, at the 20th century, even though it brought great advancements in technology and, and other fields, but they have increased uh, the... Uh, the growth of the population, among other things. So it's endless. I have an endless litany. Let's cut it short here. In terms of your own experience of cinema, you say in the book, and you've spoken about this before, that you had no experience of cinema till one day a man with a mobile projector came to our one-room village school and showed us a couple of films which utterly failed to impress me. Again, it's a very strange kind of introduction to the art form that would become the defining art form of your life. Can you remember why you were unimpressed? I do remember one film in particular. It was a film of Inuit or Eskimos at the time, who building an igloo. And since I grew up in snow and ice, I grew up on skis, I, I could tell... Uh, they were doing a very lousy job. It was apparently (laughs) staged with extras from uh, the periphery of Hollywood, and they they didn't really know how to do it. There was a second one, which was um, pygmies in Cameroon, I think, building a liana bridge across a narrow jungle river. They were much better. They were convincing. But the medium film, I I did not even know that cinema existed. I did not know until I was 11. 
it sounds strange, but uh, of course I made my first phone call when I was 17. Uh, we had no running water. We had to go to the well with a bucket. We had no um, no real uh, toilet or flushing system. There was an outhouse, and when there was heavy snowfalls, no drifts came through the the, the fissures in the wall. So it it was a childhood completely outside of. Uh, what civilization, technical civilization was. You've also said that one of your main memories of your childhood was the absence of your father. You said, and I'm quoting, we had a magnificent time, especially as there were hardly any fathers anywhere in the village. So everything was in the best sense anarchic. Do you think that that was one of the things that formed your character, the absence of fathers giving you that anarchy? I think so, because... uh, we had to to take responsibility very, very early on. Uh, and uh, we didn't have a drill sergeant around to command us and tell us what to do and how to behave. We, we had to form our own codex, codex of loyalty among the, the kids there, codex of loyalty with the grown-ups in a way. And we as children very soon had the feeling we had to re-educate our mother. And and my older brother, who was fairly few, fairly soon quite strong, he sometimes he would lift up my mother from the ground and say, I don't let you down, touch the ground again until you understand what we are trying to tell you. <laughs> so we we were the ones who educated the parents. You also recount in the book, Werner, a story in which you attacked your older brother with a knife and then you became shocked by your own potential for destruction. Uh, Sure. It's a completely embarrassing and deeply hurting story, although, thanks God, um, it was without great consequence. My brother was, we were in a fight over some something trivial, but we had violent fights. It happens among brothers, and, and it's it was quite okay. But one day, carried away in, in anger, I took a knife and, and I wounded him in, in the thigh. And then it was clear this was could bring the family apart. This could be so destructive and we, we quietly wiped the uh, floor clean of the blood and inspected the wound and we decided it wasn't that serious. We don't go to hospital because probably police would have started to investigate. And so his wound is, or his scar is still visible. But uh, you have to see it also in the context of... Uh, of, of rough behavior. Not very long ago, I was in Spain where my brother lived for quite a while for a family reunion and to a fish restaurant. And I was studying the menu. He put his arm around my shoulder uh, and we sat there and studied the menu. And all of a sudden, there was something biting on my back and some it smelled like smoke. And I realized that with his cigarette lighter, he had set my shirt on fire. And we (laughs) laughed so hard. And nobody at the table understood that this was a brotherly rough sort of joke. And and of course, we cooled my back with uh, some Prosecco 
and somebody gave me his T-shirt, which I wore for the rest of the evening. So that's uh, that's brotherly, and uh, we keep laughing about that all the time. The reason that story is remarkable, Werner, is that I have known you over many years now, and I've interviewed you in different circumstances, some more relaxed than others. I don't think I have ever seen you get flustered. In fact, I don't think I've ever heard you raise your voice. And it seems that one of the things that you are very, very good at is not raising, you know, not your hackles don't get raised. Right. Uh, it's discipline. And at the time of, of this catastrophe that I had caused, I understood this this will destroy us all if it continues. I have to do something. And and I understood I had to control myself. So much of what you see is discipline. And of course, uh, much of what uh, you see is professionalism. And I have learned it the hard way. And it has, in a way, formed my character, which is okay. You see incidents in your life challenges in your life, uh, defeats in your life, they start to to shape you. They shape your character. And uh, until today, uh, when you see me, for example, acting in a film like Jack Reacher, I'm the real badass bad guy. And I have no fingers left. I, they're all bitten away. And You chewed them off in a Siberian death camp. Like, yes. And I have one blind eye. I only have my voice a quiet voice, and I spread terror with this voice. That was the whole deal. And and this kind of, of contained discipline and still getting the essentials across uh, is something I, I learned, I had to learn, and I had to learn it on the spot, abruptly, from one day to the next. It's fascinating because you describe that as being, you know, brotherly rough play. Because the other thing that comes across very strongly in the book is your admiration and respect for the women in your life. There are three yeah. things that you say. You say, my, my mother was as brave a woman as any I have ever known. Yes. You, then, you also say that all the women in your life, you say the book isn't about them, but they were all independent, strong, beautiful, and smart. Without them, I would have been just a shadow of myself. And of Julianne, who survived this extraordinary crash and walked out of the jungle, you say her story is the extraordinary witness of a woman with more strength than I have ever seen in a man. It does come through very strongly in the book that your admiration for the women in your life has instilled itself into your character. Uh, yes, and uh, in a way it has given me a lot of confidence. Uh, and, and I... Amusing about the question, what would happen if we lived in a world, we the men now, as we are seeing each other, we the men and there were no women. It would be catastrophic. It would be unbearable. It would be unlivable. It, we just couldn't take it. It would be the most awful thing you could ever imagine. So, um, yes, women have been very, very important in my life. And, of course, I have three children uh, and uh, I am full of praise of the women who bore children. That's a hard thing. It's painful, it's violent, and uh, the amount of patience it needs to raise a child. And, and all of them, all of them were, li were lionesses. 
And what about the contradictions between that and the necessary dangers of your job? Later on in the book, at one point, you mention saying goodbye to one of your children and you were off to go and dance on the edge of a volcano. And you said it's, you know, it's it's a remarkable kind of thing, knowing that what you're about to do is go off and do something that, you know, as, as safe as you want it to be. It is an extreme situation. So how do you balance those two things, the filmmaking and the family? You can't. You can't really. Um, so um, my child, my firstborn boy was a toddler and I rush home from editing and just checking quickly is my passport still valid. On the run, I made a flight connection to the Caribbean. There was a volcano exploding, about to explode. So in five sentences, I, I explained to my wife at that time what was going on and that I was leaving. And of course, there was no guarantee I would come back alive. And so, uh, of course... That's not really the the element that creates cohesion in a marriage. There's sometimes there were irreconcilable elements. And and I had to, to make a choice, a very stark choice. And have you managed to reconcile those elements through filmmaking? Again, you talk in the book about a moment in the creation of Fitzcarraldo in which you are faced with a prospect which is you, you, maybe we can do this in a safe environment. Maybe we can do it in Los Angeles. Maybe the whole project is going to fall down. And you say something on the lines of, if I abandon my dreams, then there is no point in doing anything at all. You, the, the burden of dreams sits heavily on you. Has filmmaking given you a purpose in life when those other things have been more complicated? Yes, it has. There was always some sort of a vision a vision out there very strong in coming at me with great vehemence. And I could uh, say, yes, um, it has held, uh, held me physically somehow. And also you should not forget that, I'm, that I always was a writer. From early on, 15 years old, I would write poetry and I would publish my first book, something like 45 years ago. And since then, I keep saying, uh, uh, watch out, I'm a writer who coincidentally also makes films. <laughs> and I kept saying, uh, seriously, I kept saying and pre preaching to deaf ears, my writing will outlive my films. Do you think that's true, Werner? Yes, I, I'm convinced because the, and it's not the, so much the content when you look at my memoirs. Uh, yes, there's events, events and certain things, but the real quality of it and the real quality of, let's say, conquest of the useless is a caliber of prose. And it has been informed, my, my writing, my poetry has been informed through the uh, enormous amount of uh, physical um, presence in, in unusual situations. Like you, you do not normally move a ship over a mountain, 320 tons. That's, that's unusual. And my peers in filmmaking normally do not do that. No. They do not hypnotize an entire cast for the sake of creating a trance-like 
somnambulistic environment among the actors. So uh, it's many things that have informed uh, my prose. And uh, there are writers out there who have traveled on foot, like Bruce Chatwin or yes. the German poet Hölderlin, early 19th century. So, and, uh, and that has informed a lot of, of, of what, what is me. And um, I think I'm fairly convinced that uh, the, the writing will outlive the films. And you look puzzled, you're, you're looking puzzled, and, and I have a very simple way to explain it, or a formula, it sounds like a formula, but I say it anyway. Uh, film, films have been my voyage, and writing is home. Okay. And it's not a contradiction. I suppose the reason I have whatever look I have on my face, Werner, is because, you know, I grew up with the cinema, and cinema is my first love as opposed to, to reading. And I have burned into my brain images from Aguirre and Fitzcarraldo and Grizzly Man. And it's so it's strange, I suppose, to think that those are not the prime result of your creativity because they mean so much to me. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> because uh, I think... Uh Without films, I, I wouldn't really exist either. Without writing, I wouldn't really exist either. And without women, I wouldn't exist either. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You say this lovely thing very early on in the book. I wonder how many other possibilities, how many roads not taken there were for me, not only in film plots and stories, but in my life. And you're referring very specifically to the fact that you know, at one point we could have had a very different version of Fitzcarraldo with Jason Robots. Or actually, I think what you're writing by that point is, is the, the alternative ending to Aguirre. And when you were writing this memoir, were you haunted by the, by the roads not taken, by the stories that didn't happen, by the things that didn't come to fruition? No, I do not uh, uh, spend any sleepless nights over the things I didn't do. I don't. I accept what it is. I accept my life as it is, a wild slalom, 180 miles an hour, and then I have not crashed against a, against a concrete wall is a mystery to me because I was very, very certain I would not see my 18th uh, birthday when I was very young. And in fact, uh, when I tried to go to the Eastern Congolese provinces, right after the, or almost a year after the independence of the Congo, I would have been dead if I had crossed the border. And I have seen and I've spoken to the Polish writer and philosopher Rija Kapuscinski, who wrote wonderful books about Africa. And he made it across the border a few months before I did. And he said to me, Werner, you go down on your knees right now and, and thank God that he didn't make it across the border. He himself uh, 
was one of two of 30 or so correspondents who entered Eastern Congolese provinces. Only he and I think a Canadian came back alive. And in a year and a half, he was uh, uh, taken prisoner 40 times and he was condemned to death uh, four times. And I didn't make it across the border because in the southern Sudan, uh, in the city of Juba, which is now the capital city of the modern state of southern Sudan, I became very, very ill and kind of scrambled back to Aswan uh, and and uh, was found in a in a uh, in a shack for for garden tools, and and I barely made it. And then I was sure I wouldn't make it until uh, my twenty fifth birthday. <laughs> when I celebrated that birthday, I gave up with my predictions and I'm still around. So I was totally wrong. On the subject of getting down on your knees and praying, you you said, um, when I was 14, I got myself baptised and confirmed on the same day. And this is a phrase, I was a Catholic of my own will. So when you were young, religion was important to you. Now, I know that that has changed, but is that zeal still there? I think so, yes. And uh, you shouldn't only mention Catholicism or a deep sense for something sublime, something um, beyond human existence. It was also at the same time, within a few weeks, I started to travel on foot. I traveled along Albania at the border, which was a terra incognita at that time, uh, and you couldn't enter. And I started to develop film projects, so all at once. And my family, my mother and my father, both uh, atheists, uh, but it was not in conflict or in, in, uh, to maintain my identity by rebelling against him. My father, I didn't have to rebel, he was not around. I couldn't care less about him. Uh, but there was a void that I felt, uh, a void of something transcendent of something and I at age 14 and I describe it in detail in my book in the memoirs I went through the uh, discussions at the council of Nikea fourth century and I went uh, through the discussions of uh, the council of Ephesus a hundred years later and it was about the nature the essence of God and um, at the time, um, for example, there was a uh, heretic, Arius, who postulated that God who created time and was outside of time was different in substance from his son, Jesus, because Jesus was born within time. Hence, uh, Jesus Christ must have had a different a different essence. So it's these kind of questions that spun around in my head. But I seriously went into the discussions of the Council of Nikea uh, that are uh, fairly well documented. And did all those discussions and those investigations lead into what you now refer to as ecstatic truth, which is the kind of the hallmark of your filmmaking? I think we are all... Uh, after some sort of truth, it's it's innate. It's our nature. We are, we. I know everybody wants and tries to find some truth, and um, 
we shouldn't discuss it in detail. It's more discussed in the book. And I, I finished yet another book right after my memoirs. It's called The Future of Truth, which will be released next spring. And I go deeper into, into those questions. But in brief, I try to uh, locate. We, we know it's somewhere out there, like in, a, like in a dark forest. There's a distant light. We know the direction. And for me, the quest to find it, the approximation, the voyage, the toil to find it. I think that's um, what gives us meaning in our lives. What truth is exactly nobody knows. The philosophers have no answer. The Pope in Rome has a vague answer. Mathematicians have no answer. And I try to move away from facts from purely facts like cinema verity would do because there's some things that are more telling, more illuminating than facts. Otherwise, the phone directory of Manhattan, four million entries would be the book of books. No, it is not. It doesn't illuminate us. And I do, the briefest of all descriptions, what I do is I modify facts sometimes to such an extent that they resemble truth more than reality. I'm actually quoting André Gide, a French uh, writer, very good French writer. And my shortest example is uh, the, stat, the sculpture of the Pietà in Rome, St. Peter's in Rome. Michelangelo made it. There's um, Mary, uh, who is holding the dead body of her son taken from the cross. When you look in the face of Jesus, it is a tormented face of a 33-year-old man. And when you look into the face of, of uh, his mother, the mother is probably only 15, maybe 17. So the mother of a 33-year-old man is 17. So question is, did he try to give us fake news? or lie to us, or cheat us. Um, no, of course he didn't. He wanted to give us, by modifying the facts, he would give us the true essence of the man of sorrows and of his mother, the Virgin. So, But let's not talk much more about that. It could go on for the next 48 hours. Well, Werner, I look forward to talking to you about truth when the new book comes out, and I hope that we can do this again. On the subject of great faces, you write vigorously in the book about your encounters with Kinski and your relationship with Kinski, about whom obviously you have written extensively before. You detail how when you first knew him, he was given to crashing through doors, breaking up toilets, tearing things apart like a whirling dervish. And you write that when you were on set of movies with him, he would be explosive, often without any real purpose or reason. In fact, at one point, you say that people came to you and offered to kill him for you because he was so out of control. And yet... You and he did brilliant work together. Sure. How did that happen? It's a very long story. I made a one and a half hour film. <laughs> Our relationship, my best fiend, you can see more in detail. I think the essence of all this is I knew that there was no one for these parts in the world who would have 
uh, his presence on screen and his intensity on screen. So I uh, took myself, my my personal anger back at him and, and performed professionally, knowing the only thing that counted was what you see on the screen. And it was worthwhile. And you see, within within three days, my team was uh, was on strike. How can you do that to us again? To have this, to have this pestilence on the set again? And I tried to explain. You knew before. You know him before in two other films that I made, or three or four other films. You knew it. And we have to look. The only thing is the performance, what remains, and it's outside of Kinski, outside of me and outside of you. Actors would go on strike. Uh, extras native from the native uh, population in, in the Amazon rainforest. And I filmed two of them who had offered to kill him for me. And I said, no, I, I still need him. I thank you for the offer. It would be great, but I still need him. We have to finish that one. And... Um, it's a very, very difficult question for me how I survived all this, but I always um, fortified myself with enough philosophy to to take whatever was coming at me. I would deal with it. Only once I had to threaten him, uh, I would I would shoot him if he left the set for good, 12 days before the end of shooting. You just don't do that because I explained to him very, very quietly, there's a task out there and we have agreed on that, which is beyond us, which is much, much bigger than us. It's the film Akere, Akere, the wrath of God. And uh, I will, no matter what, I will not abandon it and you will not abandon it either. It is not permissible. This is, uh, uh, this is not acceptable. And I threatened him and he... He understood, I was unarmed, by the way. He understood that I, um, I was serious. And actually, I had his Winchester. He had a Winchester rifle on the set uh, because he was afraid of jaguars. Jaguars flee from human uh, voices far into the jungle or whatever, snakes. It, it was ridiculous. But one night when the extras in their hut and it was a thatched roof and bamboo wall, just a very thin bamboo wall. And they were laughing the after, after work into 9 p.m., 10 p.m. They were still drinking some, some booze and laughing, playing cards. He got so enraged that he fired three shots through the hut of the extras, and there were 35 of them crammed into it. Uh, and he that he didn't kill anyone is, is, is a miracle. He only uh, shot away uh, part of a finger of one of the extras. And I had to confiscate his, his uh, Winchester, which I still have. Okay. So when, you, so when you said to him, I will stop you, you did have access to his Winchester and he knew, and he knew that you weren't joking? He knew. Do you think there's a connection, Werner, between Kinski and Timothy Treadwell, because you described the first time we met, I think, was when you just made Grizzly Man. And I asked you about Timothy and you said he was broken. There was something missing. And then you paused and then you added, 
he was one of the family. And it was like you saw in him a spirit that you recognized. And I wonder whether there was some, is there some connection between that brokenness, something missing, but also that spark of something which connects him back to people like Kinsky? It's not easy to, to make this connection. I, I only sense somewhere in my soul, yes, I belong, all these figures belong together. And it's not only Treadwell and Kinsky, it's also, for example, uh, men and two women on death row. I made nine films on death row or to Kaspar Hauser, or to, you just name it, I think, or Juliane Köpke, who survived the plane crash in the jungle. And I was booked on that plane, and by coincidence, was not on, on board. So, uh, in a way, they belong together, but uh, it's hard for me to analyze it and to verbalize it, what exactly constitutes this family, the cohesion of this family. I think um, it is human beings uh, with their deepest dark recesses and their brilliance at the same time and their, their glory of existence, but it is also a worldview. In the worldview, you can see uh, and you can touch it and sense it in my writings. You open one of the books and somewhere and you don't even know who wrote it and after half a page you know it must have been me. It's a worldview uh, which is somehow different from what you normally see. When we were having that conversation about Treadwell this thing happened which is kind of passed into modern mythology at least from my point of view which is that yeah. I was interviewing you and you were shot at and you were shot at by we don't know who it was it was a kind of random bullet. It hit you in the waist and it pierced your garments and it went in, into you. And you were famously unflustered and I was famously flustered because this was, to me, this was completely out of the ordinary. You refer to it in just a single sentence in the book. You say, it felt like a bit of local folklore. And I, <laughs> I love that phrase. Do you want to, what did you mean by that? Yeah, well, uh, um, you see, I, I, I love Los Angeles and I love the United States, although, of course, I have some ambivalent feelings, but I have even more ambivalent feelings about my own country, Germany. It, it's, it, it is as it is, but in a way, um, it, it is something for the readers to munch on. Uh, I do not explain everything and we shouldn't explain it any further here as well. But I think our encounter in front of a camera and somebody firing a shot, uh, it uh, it somehow gives us a, a strange cohesion. We belong together. There's some something shaped shaped our relationship, and and there's some some sort of trust in each other. I do not want to miss. Otherwise, it would have been an interview. Now it it has become something else, which uh, is my some sort of an inner folklore as well. Yeah. Well, I love the folklore description, Werner. That, I think that suits it perfectly. Strangely enough, at the time that it happened, you were in the middle of a sentence in which you were saying that in Germany, people didn't care about your films. And one of the things that I was surprised to read in the book was you said that of the new German cinema, the only person who really stood up for you was Volker Schlondorf. Yeah. What was it about Volker and, and why wasn't, why didn't you have that camaraderie with 
with the other filmmakers at the time? Well, there's always been respect with everyone and and like Wim Wenders and some friendship, but not not to such a depth with, uh, like personally with uh, Schlondorf. I was very, very badly under attack and it was crazy at the time of Fitzgeraldo. Before I even started shooting, I was accused of committing human rights abuses and putting people uh, opposing uh, indigenous leaders in, in jail. It was completely unbased and and it was clear it was media it was just media sort of witch hunt and Schlondorf steps in front and he's purple in his face I thought he he had a heart attack or so and he yelled at the uh, at the journalists and somehow silenced them and they uh, and and it the situation became calmer and more practical and of course I uh, uh, had Amnesty International ultimately on my side who who uh, reported back that there was nothing at all. Uh, and of course, there were some native Indians, four of them incarcerated for one night, one for a week, because they hadn't paid their bills at the local bar and at the local merchant. So, But there were names and there were dates and, and I was blamed for it. So um, Schlondorf has been magnificent in in this way because he didn't uh, he didn't gain anything from it. It he he rather put himself in cahoots with the one who committed uh, human rights abuses. And a decade before, a whole decade, I was a fascist filmmaker because I made a film like Agere, which is. Uh, a, a character of lust for power and and um, no morality, but only his ego and uh, his quest for for dominance and and an empire. And it was pointed out uh, that was uh, the crown jewel of the proof. I must be a fascist because my leading character is Agere. The wrath of God. So it it was very odd how the uh, how the tendencies came and went, and I always knew. I always knew time is on my side. And the same thing with my writings. When I for forty five years I keep saying, uh, "Watch out! Uh, uh, I'm a writer who happens to make films," and uh, my my prose and my poetry. Poetry will probably outlive uh, what um, I have done on for the screen. Time is on my side. I will not see it anymore, but time is on my side in these questions. One of the things that comes through in that story, Werner, is that you loyalty is very important to you, isn't it? Yes, yes. It's a cornerstone of uh, my relationship with human beings my cornerstone and and it's actually the quality of a soldier and when i was invited to do an installation for the whitney museum which i eventually did uh, i um, immediately said no i uh, i have my problems with contemporary art and with the art market if you look at the manipulations and they said, yeah, but it should interest you if you are an artist. And they kept hammering in, you as an artist. And I abruptly said, no, I'm not an artist. I'm a soldier and hung up. <laughs> and it, 
In a way, there's a truth in it. I mean, courage, qualities of a soldier, I do not mean it in military terms, but qualities of a soldier, loyalty, courage, a sense of responsibility, defending a, a, a glorious outpost of culture that others have abandoned already. So this all sounds like a soldier. It's interesting as well because you, you've talked before and you talk in the book, you say um, one can only learn from bad films. The good films remain enigmatic, but you can learn from bad films. And we had a conversation once in which you talked about watching WrestleMania and you talked, talked about watching the Anna Nicole Smith reality show. And most recently you said to me that you had seen a television show called Here Comes Honey Boo Boo. And you said, you said because the, the poet must not close their mind to anything. So have those encounters with bad art taught you things? That's a difficult question. Not, not really for, for my writing and not really for my filmmaking, but I think as a poet, you have to know the world you are living in. You have to experience it. You have to to see. I'm not the one who who would like to withdraw to a solitary island in the beautiful beach and then write uh, a, a book or um, write a screenplay. I think um, it's a task of of the poet to participate, to understand what is going around, to understand the world, to experience it not only in the media, which I eventually do. I don't watch Honey Boo Boo often. It's actually not on air anymore. Damn, I've missed it. <laughs> be, yes. Uh, being uh, experience, experiencing re reality by traveling on foot, 1,000 kilometers on foot, but uh, I'm a lazy bum like everyone else. I, I travel when there's a big... When there's something big out there, big quest, then I would travel on foot, and it informs my 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 worldview. Okay, I have some questions here from people who've been listening. And are you okay if I run some of them past you? Please go ahead. Yeah. Okay. So here's one that says: You said that the first films you saw left you unimpressed, excluding your own. Which films would you pick to introduce young people to cinema? Well, that's a big, mighty big question. And I, my own very first films, like Heracles and so, they were my film school. I never learned from anyone. I'm self-taught. So it's it's my attempts. And, and of course, it's not that important. Otherwise, I love all my films. And um, which films, which... Uh, you have to watch some classics, like, uh, for example... Um, uh, India, an Indian film uh, trilogy in the mid-50s by Satyajit Rai, the Apu trilogy. And it's about a boy growing up in a village in India. And it's so much us, it's so much humanity, it's so deep and it's so understandable uh, and mysterious. The, the immortality of that trilogy is, is inexplicable for me. My advice would rather be to the aspiring filmmaker, it's odd, but listen to me, read, 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 read anything that's coming into your hands, read novels, read poetry, read uh, whatever, anything. You will make films if you 
do not read, but they will mediocre will be mediocre at best. Okay. I feel like I ought to say, read this. Here is another question. You say that your writing will outlive your film, but do you see the parallels with how you write and how you direct? E.g., do you think about about structuring your memoir in the way that you would structure your films? Or is it an entirely different expression of your artistic vision? I think it's a different uh, expression, although the worldview uh, gives a cohesion to films and writings. Uh, you see, when you do a film, you have many layers in between. That means uh, cameras and finances, organization, crazy actors, psychology on the set, editing, directing, everything. So many multiple layers. When you write, it's only you and the paper, or only you and the laptop. And there's nothing in between. It's a much more direct intensity of uh, of expression and that speaks in favor of my writing in a way but structuring you see i didn't have to structure much although it meanders wildly when you read my memoirs but it makes a lot of sense because i have carried my life with me in me for more than 80 years so it was fairly easy to write it down this is another question. Lo and Behold was a film that beautifully captured the fears of an internet age, yet it re was released before Trump and others used the internet to exploit alternative facts and post-truth. Has Werner thought about making a second chapter? Uh, no, I think uh, it's fine that I made that film and it gives projection lines into uh, the time even beyond me. I don't need to make a second chapter, and the second chapter has to be more specific in, let's say, the question, what is artificial intelligence doing now to us? What is the spread of these things? So it's an entirely different film. I think it was good that I did it and how I did it. Let's keep it like that. On the subject of the new memoir, the title of your memoir is the same as my favourite film of yours. Do you identify with Caspar Hauser? Uh, that's a tricky question. I, <laughs> yes, in, in a way, yes, because I grew up so isolated and, and not knowing the world at all or only a tiny segment of the, war, of the world. It was this little valley. I didn't even know what Germany was. Uh, I had no clue... Uh, that was the world, and it was small. Kaspar Hauser is an underground dungeon in semi-darkness, and he had no, no knowledge that there were other human beings or that there was a blue sky out there or trees or houses and speech. Um, and and it's, let's put it this way, there's a deep solitude. It's the deepest film about solitude in this film. And... Uh, uh, it, I, I feel very close to that character. Also to Land of Silence and Darkness, a very early documentary about people who are deaf and blind at the same time. And they experience a solitude that is unspeakable and, and somehow uh, aches inside of me. And I know, in a way, um, I, I feel very close to them. I want to ask you something about the very final chapter in the book, which is end of images. And you say, the end is coming. 
I picture a radical turning away from thought, argument and image, a darkness filled with fear, with imaginary monsters. Is that how you feel about what's happening? Yes. Yes, it's coming at us. And it begins with um, a world where probably very little uh, will be reading anything reading we will become quasi or semi-illiterates and i think uh, there is something coming at us uh, which uh, will in a way uh, cause the extinction of the human species uh, it's it doesn't make me nervous that dinosaurs died out they had their time. Human beings biologically are very, very vulnerable. Cockroaches are much more, uh, much more into survival and much more robust. Or microbes were after us. Or even um, the crocodile in the Nile swamps. Yes, they are. They are good at, and they will outlive us. And uh, I'm describing a time, maybe something like 200,000 years from now. Uh, what will remain of us? Everything will be, uh, the buildings will be gone. Our libraries will be gone. There will be no trace, but a few things like a dam in uh, northern Italy, which was very, very high in a gorge. At the bottom, it is 29 meters thick. Uh, reinforced steel and concrete, and it withstood an onslaught of 250 million cubic meters of a rock slide, and uh, uh, of and 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 it's still standing. And at least the bottom of it will, in 200,000 years, will still be standing. And what about? And and the book stops in the middle of a sentence in mid-sentence, and I actually learned from the uh, Japanese soldier Hiro Onoda, with whom I was very close, and he explained to me, sometimes you can see the future. He saw, he survived 111 ambushes, and one night or one evening he sees a bullet coming at him. The sun is low, and he sees this glowing uh, orange or copper thing coming at him and he rotates his body to the side and the bullet whizzes by and i'm sitting exactly where i'm sitting right now and outside there's a window and something comes shooting at me and for a second i believe uh, it's a bullet and i look but it was not a bullet it was a hummingbird iridescent in green colors and copper color and i had stopped writing and I looked at what I had written and I decided no more word than that. It's it's a, a book, a full book stopping in the middle of a sentence. We're getting towards the end of our time, Vern. Let me just ask you a couple. We have a couple more questions here. You've mentioned an interest in AI. What are your thoughts on how it will impact the creative industries? And are you excited or worried about the possibilities? Uh, both. Let's speak of the glorious possibilities first. Uh, I think there's phenomenal proof already in biochemistry. Uh, artificial in, in intelligence sorted out uh, all the enzymes that we have uh, studied. 
and it would take uh, 200 years manual work by scientists to find out which one is resistant uh, uh, against what, whatever. And um, of course, vaccines can be derived from it. And it took artificial intelligence six hours to identify that very enzyme. And um, it will replace uh, whole branches of professions. It will uh, replace uh, standardized sort of work. It will replace a lot. Uh, it will replace some writing, even screenwriting. When you have formalized uh, screenplays like in American action movies, there isn't that much story. And I think artificial intelligence would be capable to, to write a screenplay. However, hear me well, artificial intelligence will never write a book as good as mine. It will <laughs> never make a film as good as mine. Period. <laughs> She's one last question here. I'd love to know a few of the books that have particularly captured your imagination. Can you give us some examples? Yes, uh, you know, I started as an antithesis to the nonsense of film schools worldwide, the rogue film school. And uh, among I teach only lockpicking and uh, forging of documents without these <laughs> massive forgeries. Now, Fitzcarraldo would never have been made without massive forgery because military blocked every bend of the river where I maneuvered with my ship. And we didn't know that a, a border war between Peru and Ecuador would break out. And we were caught in the middle and my camp for 800 extras was burned down and attacked. So, uh, forgery. But um, it um, also gives a mandatory list of reading. Much of it is poetry, uh, like Virgil's, I mean, Roman antiquity, Georgics or old Icelandic, the poetic Edda and other things, including even uh, the Warren report on Kennedy's assassination. Okay. It's a fantastic, fantastic crime book and, uh, and with so much logic derived from, uh, from the evidence. It's just, it's just very, very good to read. And I would like to give you one book in particular that I keep promoting and hammering in Read uh, the Peregrine by J.A. Baker. Uh, it was published in the end of the 60s, a man completely or almost unknown until today, observes peregrines that were almost extinct in the United Kingdom. He describes it with a passion that is unparalleled. And that's how you should see the world and describe the world and experience the world. The passion that almost make him morph into a peregrine himself. And he writes prose. He writes prose of a caliber that we have not seen uh, for almost a hundred years. Not since uh, Joseph Conrad, for example. You have to read it. Everyone who is into, let's say, a creative profession, painters, musicians, filmmakers, writers, read The Peregrine. You will not regret it.
Well, thank you, Werner. That's That sounds like a solid recommendation. I want to ask you a very, very last question. I interviewed Errol, Errol Morris just recently, who, of course, you, you know and who features in the book. And he's just done a documentary about John le Carre. And at one point he asked le Carre, are you happy? And I said to Errol Morris, because the documentary is also really about Errol Morris, are you happy? I'd like to ask you, Werner, after all the inspiration and, you know, pleasure and pain that you have given people who love your films and your writing. Are you happy? I have never been after happiness. Uh, and, and you even see it in the, uh, in the American constitution, the pursuit of happiness as a central, as a central quest of individuals and of society. It always struck me as odd, but um, for me, it's much more important uh, does what I do give me a sense of belonging? Does it give me a sense of satisfaction? Does it give me a sense of, of dignity, um, of um, having not lived a useless life? Does it give me meaning? Yes, it has. And, and I'm sitting here in front of you and, and I can clearly say, Yes, uh, what I have done has given meaning to my existence. And I'm a part, tiny part of it is happiness, but it's something different. So I'm just like that. It's a lovely answer. And I have to say that what you have done has also served to give meaning to many other people's existence and has made us happy. So Werner Herzog, congratulations on the book. I would advise everybody to read it. And thank you so much. It's been, as always, a real pleasure. Thank you talking to you. It's really also wonderful to see you talk to you. This episode starred Werner Herzog and was presented by Mark Commode. The producer was Esme Bright and the series is made by me and Nicole Wong. Our editor is John Doughty. If you haven't already taken a look at the amazing guests we've got lined up for the autumn, do visit our website. We've got Slavoj Žižek, Kasta Semenya, Rachel Reeves, Robert Peston, Walter Isaacson and many more unmissable guests in person in London and via livestream. Till next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening. <laughs>